Welcome to another episode of Other Duties as Assigned. My name is Kaylee, and today Josh and I interview Sarah Reese, who's the director of the Cyber Workforce Academy at the Georgia Cyber Center. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoy. I want to start by seeing if you could give an overview of your job here and kind of what your title is and what your duties every day look like, because most of the people listening to this probably have never been here um, and might not have the opportunity to ever see the campus. Sure. So um, my title is the director of the Cyber Workforce Academy. And uh, to, to really understand what I do every day, which who knows whatever it is on any day, we're always doing something. Um, you have to look at workforce development holistically. So the way we see that is um, we know that there's a huge shortage of jobs in cybersecurity. Like that's, that's established. But how do we fill those jobs? Um, so there's a lot of different avenues for filling those jobs. Clearly, uh, we need to get people that are in the IT workforce reskilled and, and get them into security. So that's one component, so professional training for folks already in the workforce. Um, but that's going to leave a hole in the IT, right? So we have to replenish that. So, so that kind of leads you backwards to the kids, right? So if young adults are not going into college careers, getting certifications, doing things to direct themselves towards IT or security, um, then no matter what we do, we're always going to be playing catch up. So we do provide professional training and that type of thing for folks that are in the profession. But then the other large uh, area that we focus on is, is the children, right? So basically from middle school through high school, getting them engaged and understanding the types of careers in this field because, uh, you know, you, you say computer, or IT, or cyber, and some kids kind of equate that to nerdy, um, but ultimately it's actually really cool. So I think a, a big part of what I do every day when, when we work with K through 12, it's kind of breaking down those misconceptions of what it means to, to work in this field. And, um, you know, professional training, that's just a matter of it, we every day we have to keep up with all the current threats that are out there, the trends, new technologies that are emerging, and really kind of figure out how to stay a step ahead in terms of getting people trained because you can't train people on, you know, technology of today and yesterday. You really have to look at what's tomorrow's big thing going to be because I need to get you trained today so that you can respond to that tomorrow. So why do you think there is such a gap? You know, is that because affordability of education? Is it um, lack of programs that are available to people, kind of where those programs are located? Is it, um, you know, gender bias? What is, why why is there such a gap? And who, you know? So the funny thing is that I, I think with cybersecurity jobs, that's where a lot of the focus has been. And they give, you know, huge numbers in the millions and millions of jobs that were short, positions that were short people for. Um, and I don't think that it's so much that right now all of a sudden we're short. I think we've been short for years. The problem is we didn't recognize the need. And so even though maybe we did need it, if you don't recognize it and create that position, then you can't be short a person for the position that doesn't exist. So now that we've realized just how important security is because, you know, traditionally with IT, it's been is the network, are the resources available? You know, can I access them? And we're really starting to understand that, you know, just because you can access something doesn't mean that it's valuable because if there's no integrity for that something, for that resource, or, um, you know, you've, you've lost control of that resource, then you have a huge problem. So we're seeing that need in security and we're creating positions 
from that need. And so those are net new positions that shouldn't be net new. They should have been accumulated. But again, the focus has, you know, historically been on, is it up? Is it working? Can we get to the things we need? Okay, mm-hmm. great. So I, I think that it's, it's a perception of new jobs, but I don't think they're really that new. Who is filling those jobs? You know, is it is it mostly college graduates who are coming right out, or is it mostly people who are going back and getting certified in different things and kind of entering the field later in life after a career maybe in something totally different? So there was a really neat um, study that was funded through a grant from 17 to 18, 2017 to 18, and it looked at all the different types of jobs, categorized them on their skill level, and it was intermediate or sorry, entry, intermediate, and advanced. And what's interesting is if you look at it, approximately for the U.S., 20,000 of those jobs were entry level, 40,000, so twice that many were intermediate, and then about 60, actually over 60,000 were advanced level jobs. So when we look at cybersecurity really across the nation, the majority of those jobs that we're short are in those advanced level positions. So the problem is, yes, we do need to get kids into STEM career fields. We do need to be you know, pushing our education pathways to kind of um, guide folks to that particular career field, but that's not going to that's not going to help what we need right now, which is advanced, advanced level, intermediate level careerists. Um, so that's where we have to tap into our professionals in the IT field. Because if you know how a computer works, then it's you know just a, a matter of adding to that existing foundation of knowledge to get you to understand the best ways to secure it. So really, like pulling people out of the IT world and putting them into the security world is where we're at as far as filling those advanced level jobs and those entry level jobs. A lot of those are the more net new jobs because we're seeing that we can't just keep pulling from IT and pushing them into advanced security. So we have to create a pipeline, if you will, of folks that grow from entry level and they they progress in their career in that very specific area. So if you are a young cybersecurity student or a computer science student or um, trying to be an IT professional you know, is there, do we have career paths that are kind of set out where someone knows, hey, I take this class, I do this internship, it leads to this job? Is there a pipeline that's very clear for them? Or is it something where you're just adding on and adding on and continuing that education kind of down the line to figure out where you best fit? So I think it is continuing your education. But I think the thing that makes it very hard for folks leaving school right now um, is we hear, okay, there's all these jobs in cybersecurity. But if you go to, for example, I read an article that it talked about how many millions of jobs were currently posted by these top companies. I'm talking big companies, like names that you recognize. And so I went to their websites and like Apple, Boeing. These are just a couple of the companies that I went to their websites and started looking. So, you know, I put in the keyword search cybersecurity, nothing. So I put in information security, nothing. <laughs> I put in security alone and you start to see, okay, you have an application security specialist, you have a network security specialist, you have a database. So those jobs, when, when we go into, we see all these colleges and all these training programs that say cybersecurity, right? That's that's what I'm studying. I'm studying cybersecurity. What are you applying security to? Because you have to right. be a little bit more specific. When we talk about cybersecurity broadly, that's really at that top 
tier, that advanced level where you have to have the foundation in all of those things like networks and operating systems and applications. But when we talk about those entry to intermediate level positions, they're looking for people. I can't look across the whole of IT operations. I have to have a specific area. So my advice to people in the pipeline in college or you know graduating college looking at certifications is focus on what you love. I love networking. That's my passion. Um, not to say that, that you know that there's other things that don't excite me, but that's always been something I really enjoy. So network-based attacks, network analysis, and, and things like that, those really excite me. That's what I gravitate towards. Um, so if that's, if that's you, then look for network security type positions. If you're a person that just loves computer coding, bless your heart. Get a job that is application security related, pen testing, something in that particular world because, you know, eventually you're going to build foundations across all the spectrums and grow yourself into those advanced level positions. But, you know, in the meantime, just understand that, you know, cybersecurity, there's there's a few jobs out there that are real broad in that respect, but a lot of them are very specialized. And so I think people just are overlooking those opportunities. We notice here that there's a huge PR problem with cybersecurity and people even overlooking the opportunity to get involved with a program. We've got, you know, dozens of programs in this building. Um, But there's that, like you were saying earlier, there's that problem where it's really associated with nerds or somebody sitting at home alone in a dark room coding. Mm -hmm. So you're young, you're vibrant, you're in a senior level position at such a young age you know, what was your path here? How did you get to this point? And how did you kind of see see behind that nerdy veil <laughs> coding alone in your room? So, um, you know, I started off in the military when I was 17. And for me, going into the military as a young lady was very difficult. And all my friends said, uh, you're not going to make it. We know you. This is silly. Um, and that was, to me, it was like a challenge. It was like yeah. I was called to that challenge. And I was like, okay all right, we'll see. And and so that was really a drive for me. And then once I got into my job roles in the military, I realized, oh, not only am, in, am I in the military, which is, you know, largely male-dominated, I'm also doing computer work, <laughs> which is <laughs> insanely male-dominated. Yeah. So, um, so I faced that same challenge that I got, you know, leaving home at 17 from my friends. I faced that same thing in the workplace where it was well, you know, just let her do the clerical work because she'll Mm. be better at that or she'll enjoy that. And I had to stand up and say, you know, no, that's not, first off, what I enjoy. You don't know what I enjoy, and that's not it. And and second off, I'm going to do this job better than you've seen anyone do it. So really for me, it's just competitive nature that pushed me to be very successful in it. But I found that I really loved doing what I did. And, and, And I've always been really passionate about learning more and understanding how things fit together. So for me, starting in networking was great, but there came a point where, you know, I needed to know more about operating systems and computer coding and and security aspects. I needed to know more about all of it to really fully um, appreciate how networking works, right? So, so understanding those relationships and the dependencies between all these components, that's really the natural segue into security. And and for me personally, I just find it incredibly amazing. And I am a bit of a nerd, but I'll tell you that a lot of my favorite, like, 
you know, m books, movies, things of that nature are science fiction oriented because if you go back to like the 80s and you watch some of those things, you go, okay, that's not even far-fetched. <laughs> We've surpassed what they predicted, <laughs> you know? So Scary. so for me, yeah, I, I find that, you know, I, I know it's the nerd culture, but I, I think it's amazing because you, you see those things and you're like, okay, well, you know, Star Trek is maybe a little far-fetched, but is it though? Yeah. You know, so I just it's always been something I've found really fulfilling and entertaining and interesting. It's so funny because you think of nerd culture as being bad, but mm -hmm. then you come here and people are trying to create that nerd culture and yeah. they're luring people in with that nerdy ecosystem with Star Wars. And yeah, it's so funny to see it come full circle and and be seen in a good light yeah. versus something you don't want to do. You know, I think part of the thing with nerd culture is that, um, and I, I can say that as one of them, I think I can say that. <laughs> I think that the cool thing is that it's a lot of it for me when I read a book, you know, a, a science fiction book that is very computer technology, security oriented, I'm critiquing whether or not that is a viable scenario. Like that's how I'm critiquing the creativity of the story. And I'm putting it into context of if it were real or is this possible? And I think that that's the type of mindset that if um, our young people have when we consider science fiction, um, it's not so much as a prediction of the future as much as it is a pathway. So I think science fiction will almost like lead us in the direction, right? So, you know, AI, right? Like mm -hmm. that's something that we're now realizing is not that far-fetched. And so when we talk about cybersecurity, if we don't mention AI, I mean... Yeah, it, it's, it's going to be a complete game changer once we really understand the niche that that technology plays. As the fellow nerd in the room, I would just <laughs> like to say that everything that's currently happening with AI is so informed by like Bradbury books and like that whole like Blade Runner, all mm -hmm. of that. And I just feel it. And it's like a lot of the, I, I, I get so concerned that people just some people that are developing those technologies haven't read those books or <laughs> seen the consequences of a Terminator movie. Like, right. I just, it's like, please, like, that's very important to me. Yeah, like yeah. you need, you need that sci-fi knowledge. Yeah. Well, you know, I think the interesting thing with, with like AI in, in particular and, and how these technologies impact us, right? So we can look at them and how we see them impacting cybersecurity, but obviously a lot of those technologies, it's like, how are they going to impact our lives in terms of conflict? Right. Mm -hmm. And so you look at those things and if I create, a machine learning, you know, you create AI, what's it learning from? Well, it's learning from us, right? Mm -hmm. So if the machine is learning from us, then the source of its knowledge is going to guide its path. So if it learns from a bunch of bad people, I would say it will probably do bad things, you know? And so I, th I think that's when you have like those folks out there like Elon Musk and, and Bill Gates, when they talk about AI, they certainly have different perspectives and concerns. But I think some of that comes from how they see human nature and how they see the machine learning from us. And how do we apply that to our problems, right? Are we applying it to cybersecurity in a way that's making our society better? Are we applying it to war machines like in Terminator? <laughs> so you are bringing all these students in here and you're shaping their minds when they're pretty young. And you have the ability to push them down the path of you know, being on the good side of cybersecurity mm -hmm. and information, or you have the ability to put them on the bad side of that. Yeah. How do you how do you take a young person and convince them that they should be on the good side of things rather than being on the bad side and making 
exponentially more money because yeah. of what they're selling yeah. or um, hacking into. You know, I think um, that's a tough one. And we always do stress, you know, you always want to be on the good side. You always want to be doing things for the right reason. And I think that th- the benefit is with young kids, not so much with adults that are cynical and they've, you know. Jaded. But, yeah. But with the young kids, it's a matter of a lot of kids, when you ask them, what do you want to be? Some of those answers, they really give you some insight in that they want to help people and they want to make things better. You know, when a kid says, I want to be a nurse or I want to be a veterinarian or I want to be a teacher or I want to be a police officer, those are all things that kids aspire to because they want to do something good and they want to help. I don't think that most kids come, you know, with that approach of, I want to mess some stuff up. (laughs) That's not it. They want to do something that has impact. And so I think if we can show them the impact that they can have in a positive way, it's about, you know, you don't talk about people that have negative impacts in a in a good way. You know, those people that have those those things that they've done that have widespread negative impacts, we don't look at them as things that we aspire to be. So right. if if we want to inspire kids, then we have to inspire them to be something that has a positive impact. And so I think we just have to highlight all the different ways they can do that in cybersecurity. And obviously protecting us from bad guys is, is one of those ways that they can do that, you know, getting into some career field that fights cybercrime, for example. So do you feel like that was something that by virtue of you coming up in cybersecurity via a defense background, Mm -hmm. do you feel like that was just instilled in you in a different way than it is with a code monkey in their basement deciding to go to college and hack into systems and do pen testing? Like, it just seems like coming up through the army would just kind of inform that in a different, in a totally different light. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, my military service, it was so fun and, and I, I still get, you know, I still have the privilege of serving, but, um, it was never something that I walked into thinking, man, I want to do this to help people. It was just something I sort of fell into, to be honest. And it was just it was just what was in front of me. And it turned out to be an absolutely phenomenal thing for me. It instilled a lot of discipline and values. Um, but I think that it wasn't as much the military itself and the defense perspective as it was the sense of community and family that you form with fellow soldiers. And I don't think that's that's something that's unique to the military. I think that you can be in a work environment or in a family environment or in a community where that feeling of loyalty and selfless service is the there. camaraderie right, that comes with that. Right, And so it's how do we show others that we want to lift you up and so – you know, that's the right thing if we are all just lifting each other, you know, up. So I, I think that for kids to to get that instilled in them is really the first step because it doesn't matter if they go into cybersecurity or if they become a nurse. If they're helping people and doing something with a positive impact, then we, we win, right? Like that is good. So I, I think it's – but I think for cybersecurity, steering them in the right direction is really a part of that. You know, you want to be a part of this community where we support each other and we're doing things to help. Which it seems like fostering that community in cybersecurity mm-hmm. – is just inherently harder Mm -hmm. because of the disparate nature of cybersecurity. And it's interesting to be in an environment like the Georgia Cyber Center where we're trying to do the physical embodiment Mm -hmm. of the white hat hackers in one place. Look, we're all here together. Mm -hmm. And you guys are such an important part of that because of the outreach that you do. Mm -hmm. And so it's been, it's interesting 
kind of knowing like how a hacker could come up in the world and having friends all over the world who have the same ideals, different ideals, different morals, value systems, that sort of thing. But it's interesting having a co like all of us coalescing in one place Mm -hmm. here. Yeah. Well, it really, I mean, it's, it it is about community. You know, we talk about ecosystem, but it's pretty serious because if you look at some of those, you guys have probably heard the term script kitty, right? Mm -hmm. Like some of those amateur hackers that, you know, they're just kids or young adults or older adults or whoever, and they're doing it because it's cool, and they're really kind of doing it for bragging rights, street cred, whatever, um, because they're curious. And a lot of times when you see people doing things like that to brag about it or just to show they can, it's because of the community they're in. Mm-hmm. They're in a community where, you know, that's okay, and it's it's not something anyone's thinking about. And, and they've formed those communities on their own, and it might be because they don't have a strong community in – in IRL, you know, in real life, <laughs> they don't have that, you know, so they go online and they, they form these communities and there's nothing wrong with that at all. But the problem is online, like there's, there's a great book called the cyber effect that I, I've been reading and it's, it's not a cybersecurity related book, but it talks about the psychological effects of being online. Right. And so you look at the psychological impacts that, you know, the nature of being online has. And it's something that we actually don't have enough history to make some accurate predictions and assessments of what it does to us psychologically. Because right now, you know, I didn't grow up with the internet my whole life. We got dial-up when I was a teenager. So that's not something that as a two-year-old, my two-year-old daughter plays on her online games. That's not something that we have kids that have gone from, you know, born to to the end of their lifespan we haven't seen that so that psychological effect i think is is that inhibition and that idea of anonymity and mm. i think that that is where when we see those online communities where those particular effects are prevalent and it's the wrong kind of ecosystem you know so i think that growing the right ecosystem is incredibly important whether that's online or in person i think we're doing or we're trying to do that. We're doing it slowly here at the Cyber Center. We're getting these students in the building with companies who are doing things on a positive side, and mm-hmm. uh, we're pushing them up through internships and pushing them to employers. And, you know, one of the number one questions I get when we talk about community here is how do you protect yourself if you're a part of that community where there's so much information sharing and you're relying on your neighbors and the GBI is walking down to the clubhouse to ask them if they're aware of a new app that's come out that they're seeing pop up with cyber criminals. Um, People ask all the time, how do you protect your inter- you know, your intellectual property when you're working so closely with people all the time and um, across different interfaces? You know, we have government, academia, industry in one building, and they all coalesce in these really unique and interesting ways. So, you know, when you're trying to promote informa- information sharing and you're trying to get everyone in one room to talk to each other because that's so rare, how do you protect yourself there and how do you – um, be open, but also be guarded at the same time to make sure that you're not spilling the tea on yourself. You know, I think that that's probably an inflated concern. Um, I, I don't. I think that everyone has the concern, but I, I'm not sure that there's as much validity because if you drill down into it, um, like you've heard of Creative Commons. If you're creating content, you have the ability to license that content under Creative Commons, which can, um, you know, it, it can allow someone to use it with attribution to you. It can allow someone to not use it. So, so you can license the content that you're producing. Um, but honestly, 
when you produce something, that's not as much value as the way you apply your knowledge. And so I think that when we talk about protecting your intellectual property, having information versus applying knowledge are different things. You can protect your information with patents and copyrights and things of that and licenses and things of that nature. But protecting the way we apply knowledge is something that, you know, I can't steal the way you think. And so I think if we start sharing the way we think with each other, it's actually a good thing because if you share with me the way you think, that perspective may actually cause me to look at something differently and actually evolve my perception, my understanding of whatever I'm applying. And, and so ultimately, I think it's the right thing to be sharing how we apply the knowledge because, you know, at the end of the day, if you're the specialist, if you're an expert in applying this knowledge, I'm not going to try to think like you. I'm just going to ask you to help me do that. And so soliciting that help becomes this formal agreement eventually. And, and you don't have to worry about copyrights and license and patents unless it's specific information or processes or, or things that you should just go ahead and, you know, get those legal protections out of the way for anyways. How have you seen that kind of come to life on this campus? Um, I think the, the like the student study areas are the most interesting um, because you see all sorts of different diverse populations there from the clubhouse to the students to honestly just folks that live and work in the community and want to kind of come to the building and, and be in a different atmosphere to get their mm -hmm. creative juices flowing. And uh, it, it's, it's interesting because honestly the conversations that I've had bumping into people and you learn about what they're doing and then you start to make these connections that you never would have known were there and start to share ideas and maybe help each other with products. I think it's a really, really good thing. Do you think that networking is just as important of a skill to have as the knowledge that, you know, that you gain through your experience and, um, you know, your education and your background? Yeah, I, I do. I think that networking is one of those really difficult things, though, because I think if you approach networking in that, I'm going to be your friend and I'm going to network you because I think I can get something out of this relationship. I think that's probably the wrong approach mm -hmm. because I think that that self-serving and self-interested approach is going to close off certain the things. Mean, the means to an end yes. sort of attitude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, I think in networking, I think – that the right approach, and this is the approach I've taken, and it's, it's worked so far. <laughs> so I'm just basing this on my empirical knowledge. Um, the approach I've taken is I'm going to show you what I can bring to your table, and I'm going to help you in any way I can and hope that you'll reciprocate. Because if I take that first step and you don't reciprocate, I mean, I'm okay with that. Like, I'm okay with helping you and not getting anything in return. And if, if that's the way you approach every relationship – you're not going to burn any bridges. And those people that come back, you know, a year down the road or a week down the road or whenever that is, that know that, you know, this person has this way of approaching things, they're going to come back and be able to return that favor and do, you know, they're, they're, they're going to help you with whatever your endeavor is. What has been, you know, we've been open about a year. So next week's our one year anniversary. Mm -hmm. What has been the you know, the project that's given you kind of the most, um, not accolades, it's not the right word, but that you felt the most accomplished and rewarded, like walking away from. And like recognition, like in yeah. terms of something that you feel like has been meaningful. Or right? had like, the most impact on a population or yeah. a specific group. I mean, I think that 
you know, the, the field trips that we've had here, it's, it's the obvious answer. Um, you know, they're, they're hard. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> they're hard. <laughs> I am not used to having, you know, 40 middle schoolers buzzing around. I, that's, that's a lot for me. They're very hard, but it is absolutely incredible. The, the questions that you get, the answers that you get and, you know, how you can shape these kids. The perspective, ideas. the perspective yeah, that the you perspective, get. Like. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'll share with you guys. I won't tell you who, but we had a group come in and gave me a whole new perspective on middle school boys because the number one question that I was asked several times throughout the day by several boys was, can the FBI see what I'm doing online? <laughs> And, you know, the first time they asked it, I said, well, you know, there, there's capabilities, but they're not watching. And then after a few times of them asking me that, I was like, why are you asking why me Why are this? you so yeah. abundantly concerned yeah. about yes, this Yes, the answer one, is yes. Yes, they can. <laughs> right. they, they are watching you. Yeah, so, so, you know, it just gave me that perspective on middle school boys that I never really had. <laughs> so <laughs> it's fun, though. It's fun. It's, it's neat being able to answer the questions about these different jobs and careers and aspects and and, and what do you like about it? And, you know, what are the things that I actually had a young lady from one of the trips ask, how can I become a cyber soldier? I just wanted to cry. <laughs> it's like, And she said, she said, I want to fight for our country. Oh. And I was just, I was floored by that. And it made me so happy that we were able to be there and give her advice and encourage her and tell her, you know, there are plenty of ways for you to do that. And you're going to get there. It was cool. That's awesome. So I have a question with you and your military background. Do you see the climate of how countries interact in warfare changing from just being on the battlefield? Kinetic to the cyberspace to domain? To being strictly just where you don't even step foot in another country. So uh, so the Department of Defense and the um, military, they, they defined a, another warfighting domain, which was cyberspace. And so a lot of the doctrine that the cyber command uses in terms of how they operate is based on cyberspace as a warfighting domain. However, it's not a traditionally physical domain the same way anything in a kinetic battle, battlefield is, right? So it's not a tank. It's not a gun. Um, but you still have weapons. You still have effects. So we talk a lot about effects. And um, so there's not, there's not a lot of international specific like policy that dictates, you know, what is an act of war? What is a cyber attack that constitutes Are, are you saying that there's not a Geneva Convention for cyber warfare? Right. I mean, there are <laughs> some things. There are some things out there. Um, the problem is, you know, if you have, for example, an, an international policy that a few folks have signed on to, but we haven't and several other power countries haven't, well, I don't know how applicable. I mean, you know, like, you didn't sign on to it, so you don't really have to follow those rules, do you? So so problem one is we don't have a lot of policy that defines it. Problem two is we're not talking about cyber warfare in terms of realistically what are our capabilities, what are our red lines, and that stops us from producing policy, right? So we don't talk about the capabilities, and that's because a lot of the capabilities are kept – classified, right? Like we don't want other people to know what we're capable of doing because it it's like me showing you, you my hand in poker. So so that's that's problematic. Um I think that 
when we talk about cyberspace and, and actions that go on there and effects, I think it's a component of warfighting. And I think that we've seen, I mean, clearly we've seen that it's been going on kind of, you know, underneath underneath the, the covers. It's been quietly just ongoing, uh, you know, volleys back and forth of different effects and attacks. Um, I think that when it comes down to it, we have to make policy. We have to start talking about capabilities. And we have to understand that if I'm not willing to tell you how I attributed this attack to you, then I don't get to retaliate. I either have to turn my card and tell you this is how I know it was you or I don't get to retaliate, right? Because with kinetic warfare, it's different. I can see missiles. I can track them. I can identify things in, in, in our real world. But when we talk about attribution cyber warfare, it's very much different. Um, so I, I think that that's, that's kind of where we have to go. Um, but it's scary. I don't know. It's, I don't know if it's as scary as it's, you know, made out to be in the news. It is scary. Like, don't get me wrong. It's a concern. Um, but I think that I hate likening it to the, you know, uh, mutually assured destruction. And, and because I'll tell you that cyber warfare is nothing like nuclear warfare. It really isn't. But I think there is an understanding that, well, if you take down my power grid, I'm probably going to take down yours or do something bad too. So I think that there is an understanding internationally about the way those effects impact our civilian population, how they impact the system as a whole, because you have to think about, you know, second and third order effects. And if those have economic consequences or other you know, ripples of effects that can actually, you know, impact a global economy, for example. So I think that, you know, we do worry about it, but I think that there's probably some uh, unspoken red lines that are in the sand right now that everyone's sort of adhering to. I think the fear is that someone steps out of line and, and crosses one of those red lines. But again, if we start talking about capabilities like adults <laughs> and start determining what the rules of engagement are, I think we can probably... Um, figure out a, a way forward with that. What do you think it's going to take? Because if we're being reactive right now, um, rather than proactive. Right. Well, so I think that's why when we when I talk about like work with the K-12 community, I always stress not only to kids, but the teachers that we talk to, I always stress to them, you've got to get cyber and technology into curriculum outside of just computer coding, mm -hmm. you know, technology. Like it's not just science. If we don't talk about the impact that technology has on our society, if we don't talk about how these things um, are important to policy and law and economics and those types of things, you know, we're going to create the next generation of lawmakers and voters that have no understanding of that. How can you make informed choices and drive policy if that's not a consideration? If we look at this from the strictly, you know, technical perspective of, you know, this does this, this is this is a resource, it's IT. If we look at it from that perspective and we don't incorporate the effects that it has on society and how it drives everything in our lives, then I think that it's it's difficult. And I think that IT, automations, the digital age, whatever you want to call it, it, it comes down to opportunities and power. Um, I think that it's – there's a really great researcher that, that I love listening to her talk. She, she talks a lot about internet governance. The internet as a whole really doesn't have an, an, an internationally agreed upon governance structure – and when we look at that, we find that things like IoT and the way we have operational technology that dictates things and the way we are seeing cryptocurrency come up and those types of things are more than just, you know, conveniences or nice to have. 
um, they facilitate processes in our society that are tied to human rights, safety, and well-being. So I think we really have to, to look at that seriously and make sure that that message and that intricacy of, of the way things connect and the dependencies and relationships there, that that's, um, that that's fully understood by our, our young generation. You know, I, and I don't think it's outside the scope of what a high schooler can approach. I think that they should be approached with that in, information. Are you helping drive that movement at all locally or at the state level? You know, are you helping impact curriculum and get that changed so that the students do have a better understanding and a baseline before they get into some of these more complicated areas? So we, we've, you know, already started working with teachers and training teachers. And while some of the teachers that we've been training are specifically technology teachers, computer science, cyber, that thing, that type of thing, um, some of the teachers that we're working with um, through School systems that have approached us with, you know, that ask are not technology teachers, um, like math teachers, for example. And hopefully we're, we're soon going to be working with some social studies teachers. And I think that's promising. The fact that, you know, school systems, teachers um, are understanding that this goes well beyond just a computer science class. So <laughs> I, something that I've heard you talk about in the past that um, – I just think is really, really interesting is that the advancements in cyber at this point, like technology wise, becoming a better coder is great, but a lot of it has to do with like the social fallout aspects is we've kind of been touching on mm -hmm. a little bit and talking about like, you know, the tit for tat back and forth between mm -hmm. governments and that sort of thing and companies. Mm -hmm. But there's an interesting notion where it's like, if you don't understand the social ramifications of what you're technically doing, mm -hmm. then you're, you're not a fully informed professional in the field. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, that's, that's exactly why when we try to inspire kids and we try to talk about, you know, that white hat side, that ethical side and, um, and having that community, I, I, you're spot on. We have to um, look at the fact that, you know, it, it's, it's about our society as a whole. And uh, the impacts that we have, like you said, from a technological perspective, I know you've heard this, just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. And I think that's something that's – I think the hardest place with that for me is in the private industry, right? I, I think that, it, you know – the hope is from a government perspective and from an academic perspective that those particular sectors, they kind of understand that. I think it's more in the private industry where you have the idea of shareholders and, and leaders in companies that are so far removed from the effect that they don't actually think about should this be something we're doing. So, One of our facets of our mission here is to deliver affordable and relevant education and training. Why do you think that affordability and accessibility of training is so important, and how does that affect um, the availability of information for policymakers and how they move forward with decision-making in an unbiased way and in an educated and relevant way? So I think, you know, the affordable and relevant training is specifically something that in terms of training the professionals in the workforce, like I mentioned earlier, that's something that, you know, for the academy – we have to be at the front of. And I'll tell you that coming up through IT, um, 
you know, in the 90s, around the 90s time frame, is the, that's when you started to first see those very specific industry certifications, right? So this particular company has this technology and they have certifications to attest to a person's ability to use, maintain, whatever. So, so it started in the 90s, um, kind of during that boom and it progressed to where it moved from not just industry specific, but more broad things. So you had different associations and different um, consortiums that created, uh, you know, different types of platforms that were vendor neutral. So now you can get a, spec- a special certification, but it's across different vendors, but for the specific to- technology or, or thing. And so I remember. Um, a time not very long ago. Okay, it was probably kind of long ago. It was, it was about a dozen years ago. <laughs> oh, um, when getting certifications um, was a matter of. Have you guys heard of test dumps? It, it was. It was the test dump is is I think what broke the system. So years ago, it was an idea that all of these certifications were valuable, and so if there's value in it, it causes more people to try to obtain them. And the value is demonstrated through different companies and agencies starting to require those certifications. Um, so once those certifications were required, then you had other companies that came out and said, oh, this is 100 multiple choice questions. I'll just go ahead and collect all that information. I'll sell you a dump of those questions. Mm-hmm. You can just memorize it and get the certification. So that started to devalue those certifications, which means that the certification authorities had to then raise prices, change content, get more creative with, with what they were doing. Uh, a lot of them went from lifetime certifications to, oh, hey, technology changes. Maybe we should update this. So it went to a model where you took the test, you got the certification, but to maintain it, you had to not only pay, but have continuing education units that you provided to them as proof that you were continuing to progress and learn. So that's, yeah, that's kind of the evolution of that. But if if we go back to why did those certifications, um, why, why were they considered valuable. Well, that I think a part of it was when the Department of Defense adopted uh, their their baseline certification program covered under DOD um, 8570. So that specified that anyone in an information assurance work role, that means if you're a system administrator, a network administrator, a security person, anyone that works with IT, depending on your level, you know, beginner all the way through advanced, they had different, you know, one, two, three. So depending on your level, you had to hold a certain certification. It could be industry or vendor neutral, but that would attest to your, you know, ability to perform those work roles. And I think that it made sense what they did and there's nothing it, wrong it with was what like, they It did. was like a tangible right, thing right. You that you could point to that yeah. be like, yes, that. Yeah, because the thing is a lot of people, especially those folks that came up through the 90s and then were in, in their mid-career at that time frame when this all came about, um, it, it was a matter of, well, what are your qualifications? Uh, I've been doing it for 20 years, <laughs> you know, and, and that, that's reasonable, but like – yeah, they needed something specific to point to so that they could differentiate between someone that had been doing it for 20 years and maybe someone that had been doing it for five. How do we know that person doing it for five was just as good? Because they could be, right? So they used the certifications as that metric. And well, when the DOD makes it a hiring requirement, yeah, other people followed suit with that. So then you had everyone following suit, which again means that those certifications have value because to get a job, you need the certification. Um, 
So that kind of gets us to where we are today, where the certification authorities have had to continuously update, change the way they issue them, change what they charge, and find ways to discourage just outright cheating. Um, And so it, it has caused some of those certifications to be just outrageously priced to the point where, you know, they're not affordable for some people, um, not only the actual certification, but the training leading up to it. I think another problem with the industry certifications is if you look at the history of them, what they were meant to do was to attest to an IT professional's capability, especially when you look at vendor neutral. It means, hey, I've been doing this for 10 years, and I can demonstrate through the knowledge I've gained over that time that I can do this. Well, when we start pushing industry certifications to high schoolers and middle schoolers, those certifications are assuming you have a background of actual working experience. There's a huge difference between having working experience and having book knowledge. And we know that. That's, that's, that is a statement that is very hard to, to argue. You know, there is a difference between practical application of knowledge and right. just having book knowledge. So when we look at that – there's actually there was there was some studies that were done um, that looked at training that was provided to individuals from certified you know trainers that worked in the IT industry versus training for that same certification that was provided by non-IT industry folks that just were given the book knowledge. Mm -hmm. So a teacher, for example, is given the book knowledge and then asked to reteach it. There is a significant difference in the level of outcomes between the groups they taught. Regardless of the capability of the groups, it was a matter of when someone that has a background and experience and knows the real-life application approaches teaching a subject, they inherently teach it differently than someone that has zero knowledge of the application. So when we say, well, you know, this high schooler graduated and they have this particular certification, and so that makes them employable, it might get them the job because that's a requirement of that particular job. right? Or it might get them the relevant internship right? or whatever it may be. It might get them in the door, but it's not going to keep them there. It's going to require that person to start to be able to acquire and apply knowledge in that particular field before they become, you know, a valuable asset in their own right. So I think that equating your value to a certification is uh, probably not a great way to do it. <laughs> like, I don't value my I we call those alphabet soup. I don't know if you've ever heard that. But someone that has, you know, fifty different certifications after their name and their signature block, it's because they have alphabet soup that they dumped out after their signature. And uh, I mean that's that's great. And and there are plenty of people that have all those certifications because they know that information inside and out and can apply it. And that is awesome. But I don't take alphabet soup to mean that you absolutely know how to apply the knowledge. It means that you've taken those certifications and you may or may not have the ability to apply that knowledge. The hope is you can. But that's where having training here that is affordable and relevant and really focused on the hands-on aspect, the application of the knowledge, that's where that's important. And I think especially for certifications in in cybersecurity, those attest to knowledge, but cybersecurity, you know, unless you've been living under a rock, you've probably heard someone say that it's about critical thinking. Mm -hmm. You, you You can outsource information parsing and, and, you know, combing through data and looking for patterns to AI and to not even AI, you can parse that out with just, you know, the technology that we have today. But Thinking critically about something, that takes a human being. It, it takes someone that can flip that around and look at it from another perspective and another perspective until they see the anomaly. And so I think that's something that you don't get out of a certification. So that's where, you know, 
I think the value of hands-on, realistic, scenario-based type of training is going to change what we see in terms of the quality in, inside of that workforce. And I think that we hopefully will see a change and a shift in mindset from employers that start to say, I actually need someone that can think critically and analyze things more than someone that can answer these hundred multiple choice questions correctly in a span of an hour. Can you talk a little bit about how you choose which training you're going to offer? Is that a needs-based thing? Is it a state agency that comes to you and says, hey, we really would like our professionals to be trained in X, Y, and Z? Or is it, do you do this through partnerships, um, you know, with DOD? Or um, is it something, like you were saying earlier, where you notice that something is so expensive and unaffordable for the workforce and you're able to offer it for a lower cost? It's a little bit of all of that. Okay. Some of it has to come from uh, the you know requirements that, for example, state agencies give us. They say this is a particular skill gap we have, so we need to work on that. Um, another thing that I think is is something that we have to pay attention to and, and that we look at very specifically is tools. And the reason is because in a traditional education, like in a college course, you can't focus on a specific tool especially uh, like your open source tools, they tend to change pretty rapidly. Um, and when we talk about what we do in cybersecurity, a lot of it is critical thinking and analysis, but without using a tool, there's very little you can do. So being able to use tools is not something that colleges and universities actually teach because that is very specific application and and use, you know, use case specific. So you can't do that in a college or a university. You can do it in like an industry certification course, or you can do it in a vendor neutral course where you address certain um, tools that are, you know, mainstream, widely used, you know, types of tools. So that's a strength that we have here where we can provide that type of exposure and training to relevant tools and products that are out there. Um, we tend to like to uh, lean towards the open source side because uh, open source – some people think, oh, well, open source means it's free. Well, yes, um, but, you know, just because it's free doesn't mean it's not good, right? So there's that whole um, cheap, good, and fast. Is that what it is? <laughs> uh, that dynamic, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? So just because it's cheap doesn't mean it's not good, Um Open source just means you can look at the code. It's there. It's being contributed to by the community. It doesn't necessarily always mean that it's – the use is usually free. Which which it makes it so centered around the mission here. Right. Because it's about collaboration. It's about information sharing. It's about right. getting everyone in the same room to work off the same sheet of music. Yeah. That sort of thing. Yeah. So the open source code, like it's free to use that tool. But, for example, if you wanted support – that, and that's how a lot of these companies, you know, when we talk about, well, Linux is an open source operating system. Yes, but if you want a Linux supported operating system, like you want a server or client that's supported by a large corporation because you don't have that in-house support network, you can do that. Like the code's still open source, but it's a stable specific version that that company, you know, they, they provide uh, service for. Same for tools. There's tools that you can use freely, but training for those tools so you really know how to employ them, that usually costs money. So the hope is, you know, you lower that cost and get more people out there capable of using those tools, deploying those those particular resources, and then we have a, uh, a better trained workforce. How does all of that tie in with the cyber range here? So the cyber range is 
just like I was saying, it's open source. Um, it's based on OpenStack, which is a community-driven open source project. And it's 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 a lot. It's complex. Um, Red Hat has a supported version. So if you wanted to do a, a enterprise-supported version, you can pay Red Hat, and, and they'll build it through their stable tested code. Again, open source, and they'll support it. Um, but that's that's the backbone of our virtualization environment, where we can create different types of scenarios, different types of labs, different types of situations for people to respond to that are on real virtualized machines. So it's not a simulator; it's actually the machine and 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 the operating system as you would find it deployed on a hard piece of hardware. So it, it's a lot more realistic, and that's important because <laughs> if you've ever done anything in IT or you been in IT, you know that there's always that thing that you're like, why did it do that? I have no idea. It's just, it just it, is. It just happens. It's just, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, why did rebooting it fix it? I no idea. Because, because it, it works. Did. Because it works. Yeah. Just be thankful. Yeah. So, so it's, it's just that there's a lot of complexity there. And so that goes back to book knowledge versus practical knowledge, right? Having those realistic virtualized environments where I can experience those bugs that it's just like, I don't I don't know that just happened because it's a the software responded in this specific way to something. Um if you've ever heard the term fuzzing, the idea behind fuzzing is uh if you're a like just for example, say you're a program and you expect x as an input. Well, I'm going to throw y at you and z at you and abc and 123. I'm going to throw all these things to you knowing you that that you expect x and Maybe you have parameters that when you see Y and Z, you say, nope, that's not X. I don't want it. But then when I throw a number at you, you just lose your mind. <laughs> so it crashes the program. So so the idea of fuzzing is, you know, that it, I it's all very complex. And so when you start working inside of a realistic environment, you see those scenarios where we know that there's always going to be conditions that are very, very complex that cause a... Uh, set of outcomes that are not easy to anticipate. And so I think that there's a lot of value in that. Um, I love the fact that the range is a place where people can work together. If you go into an environment and someone else goes into an environment, you can do like red on blue type of engagements and start to, because that's the thing is, you know, the, the IT, while it is complex, you can always trace it down to the piece of the code that did what it did for what reason. But when we start looking at cybersecurity, you have that human element. So why did the bad guy do this, right? So that's when we start talking about red on blue. While that's more intermediate and advanced level, there's so much value in understanding that when this didn't work and I took this action – the adversary did this thing in response. And starting to see those types of dynamics, I think is another valuable thing that we really, we don't always think about. We think about all the technical stuff, but we don't always think about the person aspect. You know, there is, there is a person on the other end. There is a bad guy on the other end. So we have a statewide mission, Sarah, and, you know, we're in Augusta because of Army Cyber Command moving down here, and um, you know we're right we're right next to Fort Gordon. We're twenty minutes away, essentially. But we do have a statewide mission. We have to tie this back to the state of Georgia and the and um, former Governor Deal's commitment to advancing cybersecurity in the state. So, how does the cyber range open the Georgia Cyber Center up to the state and make this a resource that anybody, no matter which part of Georgia or really all over the United States or wherever you happen to be, how does how does the cyber range make us more than just an Augusta or a Georgia mission? Well, that's a great question. I think that um, 
there's a misconception that a cyber range is something that you have to physically be in the location for because people equate it to like a pistol range, a shooting range, you know. That's not it at all. It's a cyber range is virtual. It's virtual machines. It's all in the cloud. So you can actually be anywhere and engage in the cyber range. And so that's why it doesn't matter if you are in Savannah or Atlanta or a rural county way out in the mountains in Georgia. All you need is an internet connection and a browser. That's it. And then you can engage in the range and you can, you know, engage with other people in that kind of red on blue. So that's the cool thing is, you know, it's not just that Augusta University students are going to sit there and play on that range. You can have students from all over the state log in and play against each other and and learn from each other, right? And you, you start to see all the different uh, perspectives that come with that, and you see so much value there. So like I said, I think it, there's a misconception that cyber range means you have to be here. <laughs> you can be here and use it. It's super great. You can use it here. I love this place. I mean, come and visit. But you don't have to. You can do it anywhere. It's in the cloud. It's, it's technology. So we've tackled accessibility and we've tackled affordability, but I know another thing that's really important to you and that you're passionate about is how we bring women into the workforce and how we educate females and we kind of bridge that gender gap. Can you just talk a little bit about what you're doing here and what we're doing in the state of Georgia and how you're working towards that and you're, you know, breaking down those doors for our girls. It is a big, audacious goal. Yeah, and it, it is. It's a real problem. Yeah. yeah, we just happen to be in a place where most of our cybersecurity professionals are women, yeah. which is really unusual, but I don't think it's Which, as way. a man, is very refreshing. <laughs> you know, it's funny that you say that because I had a discussion with someone a couple of weeks ago, and this individual actually cited to me that they thought that the push for women in cybersecurity was way too much. It was, mm. it was overdone. And I thought, interesting. it's interesting that you're telling <laughs> this as a person to me, and I'm a woman, that we're going overboard with it. Okay. <laughs> That's your opinion. They don't know you uh, very well, do no, they? <laughs> no. So I just, I just said, okay, I respect your opinion, and that's fine. But I think my opinion is that um, coming from, like I, I explained earlier, coming from a male-dominated place in the military and a male-dominated field in, in IT – I think that women, we know women are different. My goodness, we're different. We're so different. We like to talk about things. We like to analyze things. Like he said, it's fine. What does that mean? What, what, was, what did he really mean, right? So women have a tendency to look very de- deeply at details, analyze things from so many different angles before they make a determination. And I think that's one of those things that, you know, while we say it jokingly as a, oh, you know, that's, that's a thing women do, that's an incredible asset. Mm-hmm. Like it is incredible in terms of analysis. Like who better to analyze something than someone that is going to obsessively turn it on its head and look at the details. And so, you know, women have a different perspective, not to say that men aren't great, you know, at analyzing things, but our brains are going to look at things differently. Everyone does. Every individual does. And, and so that's a strength. And it's not just about women. Every individual looks at something different. And so your background, your experience, and your brain structure inform the way you look at things. So the more diversity we can pull into cybersecurity, the better chance we're going to have at solving all those complex problems and looking at all of those really crazy, intricate dependencies that lead us down the roads that we you know, see in cybersecurity. So again, I think it's important that we see women in the field because we don't have as much representation as I'd like. Um, but it's also important that we see diversity in every single respect in the field. And 
I will tell you the fact that our road is named Grace Hopper, it, I, I, I don't think that if when I had joined the military, you told me that I, they would name a city in Augusta, or sorry, name a street in the city of Augusta after a pioneering woman computer scientist and that I would get to like, literally work. responsible for yes. compiling code. Right. Like, like they, yeah. they named the, the road after her and I would get to work in a facility that embraces women in technology and diversity and just respecting every single perspective. I think that I, I wouldn't have believed you for a second. So I'm incredibly lucky. And I think it's a, uh, a great thing that we have such a diverse ecosystem in all of the different genders and perspectives and races and uh, religions and ethnicities and values. And, you know, it doesn't matter because it's, it's about bringing diversity because it strengthens us. Awesome, Sarah. So just to close this out. Um, can I ask, can I ask a closing yeah. question? <laughs> okay. So just because the workforce Academy or the training that you do at the cyber center is, I'm not going to say it's just inherently value focused, but it's, I mean, it's one of the advantages of us not being a private corporation mm -hmm. um, is that we can charge kind of what we believe is a fair price mm -hmm. without a profit motivation yeah. per se. Um, so if you are a young woman working at a McDonald's making 10 to $13 an hour mm -hmm. and you're like, I am so done wiping down tables and cleaning up exploded ketchup packets off the floor and all that. Mm -hmm. What is kind of that first logical step? Like, where do you need to get yourself? Because you're like, this seems like something I'm, you know, I believe that I'm technically minded mm -hmm. and I want to progress myself and get out of what I believe to be a dead end job that isn't going to be a career for me. Mm -hmm. What's that first step? So I think that uh, it's, it's a tough one. I think that obviously – Because there's so many different ways yeah, to cut that. Like, I think that having uh, a level of computer literacy is just important, just having the ability to use a computer, right? That's that's step number one. Be able to use computer, <laughs> one. All right. Can you so, computer good? Can you computer good? <laughs> if yes, go to next item. Check. <laughs> so I think as long as you have some basic literacy, the thing is – this is my assumption. If you are working at McDonald's or in any – any particular service industry job, doesn't matter. You're working in a service industry job and you want to go into a career that has some significant progression and, uh, and IT is that particular focus, then I think that you have some different routes. If you are willing and able to take on loans, that's great. Or if you have the ability to finance a formal education, that's great. I think that there's a lot of affordable options in the technical college system. The university system of Georgia is very affordable in Augusta, for example. So those are options for you. Um, I also think that, to be honest, one of the biggest barriers for getting you know, into the, into the tech field is they want you to have experience to give you a job. So to be honest, um, I know that, you know, some of the temp agencies locally actually frequently advertise very low level IT jobs. Now, the drawback is these are minimum wage jobs. However, a minimum wage job in IT is experience. So sometimes you just have to look and say, you know, is this something that I can, you know, can I financially do this? get my foot in the door with the experience. If I can get that that first initial experience, then that education is going to go further and you're going to be able to you know, kind of progress. Well, and it's like it's that perspective of like 
let me suffer mm-hmm. for an amount of time. Right. Mm-hmm. And as long as that amount, as long as that suffering pays off, right. then I'm good. Because suffering, it's worth it. Yeah. Work, working at a fast food joint or something like that. A certain, That's eternal suffering. Yeah. I've done it before. Yeah, <laughs> in retail, whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, and so it's like the whole notion of like, I will let me come work for you for free mm-hmm. just so I can get experience. Because mm-hmm. I don't have experience, but I want it and mm-hmm. I'm passionate. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like like having the passion and wanting to mm-hmm. go somewhere, yep. like that's your baseline. Right. It's it's like you said, it's the passion and it's the willingness for you to say, I am okay with the fact that this is not glamorous, that this is gonna be hard work, and I am going to do this for what whatever amount of time I'm comfortable saying I can do this in order to work myself into a better position. And it's one of those things where you don't get anything handed to you in life that is of value unless you were born in a really fortunate situation, <laughs> in which case, congratulations. But, you know, for, if you haven't been born into a situation where things have been provided to you, you have to work for them. And so you just have to realize, like, I mean, me and and Kaylee had a discussion earlier about where we came from, and mm-hmm. I did not come from money, Josh, or I would not have joined the military at 17. Exactly. <laughs> oh, goodness, yeah. you did. <laughs> that wouldn't have happened. But I, I worked really hard, and I, I, I knew that, you know, regardless of how it turned out, that that hard work would mean something in some way. And it, it took time, and now I am where I am, and so I'm, I'm thankful that I had that perseverance. And so when you connect those dots going backwards mm-hmm. – because there's a famous Steve Jobs quote about how you can only connect the dots looking back. Absolutely. You can't connect them going forward. Yep. Nobody can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then, like, when you connect those dots going backwards and you think about, like, if you had not joined the military, gone the different path, mm-hmm. gotten that service industry job, and then tried to Oh, no, to work- I was going to be an artist, Josh. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it's that, that whole idea of, like, just making that one, that one choice just, like, moves the meter in a totally different direction and just allows you to grow in a totally different way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I do want to point out for anyone listening who might be interested in internships or um, positions that are open, we do have a brand new website that just launched. It is gacybercenter.org. And we do ask our partners to um, let us know when internships and career opportunities are available. So if you are someone who is looking for the opportunity to get started and gain that experience, we do post our internships there that our partners offer. Um, And we have multiple partners from industry to government to academia within the building. So there's there are a lot of different options um, in a lot of different areas. So, Sarah, Josh and I were kind of on the same um, mindset for closing. So, to close, what is your biggest piece of advice or your best piece of advice that you can offer someone who is just starting a career in um, computer science or IT or cybersecurity? So, actually, it's something that I, I can really – I can really articulate through an example of a a very young lady that works with me in the National Guard. She's a young soldier. She's, I don't know, maybe 22. And um, so she's she's only been in the National Guard for a few years, and she's in an IT field. And um, like all of the young soldiers, as one of the senior officers in that particular unit, um, I help to train them and kind of coach them and lead them and, and get them up to speed so that they can perform their duties for our mission. And she had a talk with me a couple, couple months ago, and she said, you know, 
I asked her, she was supposed to be enrolling in a technical college to pursue an IT-oriented degree. And I thought that was fantastic. And I asked her a couple months ago how that was going. And she said, you know, I think I'm going to change it to nursing. And I said, why? Like, you're doing so well. You're doing so well here. Why is that? Is it just that you've lost the motivation? Is it that you've lost the interest? And she said, no, I just don't think I'm good at it. Yeah. And to be honest, that's something that's very common with women, but I don't think it's uncommon with men either. Um, I think that when people start to look at something and say, I'm not good at it, so I should go a different route. I think that for her, she really enjoys it. And what's funny is she was she was having trouble with the networking perspective. And so I introduced her to Python and taught her to code just like a day's worth. And she said, oh, my goodness, this is the direction I want to go. I want to do computer science. I didn't want to do IT. I want to do this because this makes sense to me. I get it. And so for her, it was figuring out the piece that she enjoyed and that she felt like she was good at. Because to be honest, she didn't feel like she was good with networking, but she was. But she didn't feel it. And so sometimes I think you just have to, you know, don't let feeling like you're not doing well discourage you from pursuing it. Maybe seek another person's perspective. Seek some guidance. Seek, Try seek, to find an ally. Right. Find an ally. Yeah. Find someone that's going to say, you know, but is it something that you think is interesting and you want to pursue? Because if it is then by gosh, do it. You know, you're just, sometimes you need some help along the way. And so, like I said, with her, it wasn't that she didn't, you know, and necessarily, it wasn't that she wasn't good at IT. It was just this aspect that she felt frustrated by that once we opened up her eyes to a different aspect, she realized that all of the aspects are interconnected and she can have any one of them. And she really loved that one. So I think she's going to be okay. <laughs> I hope so. That's awesome, Sarah. Yeah. Um, it's been awesome talking to it's you. It's been totally great. Awesome. We're lucky to work on the same campus as you. Um, round of applause. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Other Duties as Assigned, a podcast recorded out of the garage at the Georgia Cyber Center. We'd like to say thank you to Sarah Reese for taking time out of her day to sit down and talk with us. It's always fun to spend an hour or two with your favorite coworker. <laughs>